Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Mark Jenkin. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Indeed. Now, usually I make a point of going, oh, somebody's in the room with me, as in they're in my living room in Leighton. Uh, but no, I'm uh, I'm on manoeuvres. Mark and myself are sat in... Uh, the busy hive that is the British Film Institute. We are Stephen Street. The off the offices. You've been clamped? I think so, yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? Pricks. You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff. I work off. in the arbor, I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? you on the beach. I'm telling Mum you're hanging around with him. You live in this community. Oh, the community. I saw a ghost from my past today. As I approached, they dwindled away. Losing your temper isn't going to help. I haven't lost my temper yet. Your old man wouldn't have shut the pub in the winter. Get out! Talking about fishing, not fucking hospitality. I'm just trying to earn a living, you know? So are we. We didn't have to sell us this house. Didn't we? Uh, we come to talk about your movie, Bait which I've already had the pleasure of speaking to your leading man, Ed Rowe. Yeah. Uh, or Edward Rowe, I should say. I did chat that with him before we even started. And I've done it wrong did he right. say Edward? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I never... I, 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 had to int- I introduced him at the NFT um, a while back, and I think he said introduce him as Edward, and then at the last minute I, I couldn't remember... I don't know, yeah. Actually, well, my dad's called Edward, so it was like yeah. it was kind of a natural thing to check because everyone calls him Eddie. Yeah. But, but I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. No, no. No, I know because I think when I first knew Ed or before I knew him, he, he was, like on Facebook, he was listed as Ted. 
Ted Kerno, I think his name was, which I didn't know whether that was just a, a temporary thing that he put up as a joke or something, but it's always stuck in my head. Even now, now I know him quite well. Yeah. And he's a good friend of mine. I still see, I still see the name Ted when I, when I look at him. But tell, tell, for, the, for the benefit of the audience, and we're here to promote the fact that, that on the 17th of January, there's going to be a BFI screening with live score of bait. Yeah. And on the 20th of January, there's going to be DVD and VOD release. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the 17th down on the BFI South Bank NFT1, which is the screening of bait with a, a reimagined score mm. performed live by Gweno. Yeah. Saunders, who, um, who actually gave us a track to use in the film. It's one of the jukebox, one of the songs that plays on the jukebox in right. the pub. Her tune, um, Ez Kez. Um, so she's gonna, she's reimagining the score on the seventeenth with with um, with uh, Georgia Ellery as well, playing strings, who plays Katie in the film, who's also a great musician. Wow. Yeah, that's on the seventeenth. Um, that's not the only unintended consequence, is there, of you making this film? Where um, you're now a rock star, aren't you? Officially, uh, since since making that film, and now we're sat here to this day. Yeah, you've now done the recording contracts, haven't you? I, tell I've us got, that story. I've got a one album deal. Have you? <laughs> so tell us what happened there. Then why did that come about? Reg from Invader contacted me from Invader Records. Contacted me on Instagram and yeah. and just um, sent me a, a message. Just saying, seen the film, loved the film. Have you thought about putting the soundtrack out on uh, as a record? And I originally thought. Hold on a minute, can I just rewind on that story? Mm. We'll get to that bit. More the fact that what the music is that's on the film mm. wasn't necessarily intended to be the music for the film. No. Well, no. Um, uh, you put a, you created a drone track. Yeah, I created a, 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 what people seem to call a suite of tracks. Okay. So um, I think I had about <coughs> 12 or 15 drones that I'd created oh. in the studio just using an analogue analog synthesizer and a reverb box and an echo oh. guitar echo pedals and i te with sound i tend to record everything to quarter inch tape so i sort of master everything to tape there and then and then can't do anything more with it so it's just an artifact that i either use or i don't use but actually what i'd done i'd started making these drones just as a bit of a bit of a distraction from the editing of the film because mm. i was so i'd spent three months Hand processing, hand processing the negative, right? And then I was editing it. I was sort of so swamped with the film, and it was really affecting my state of mind. And I mm. thought I need to do something else that isn't the film. So I started creating these drones. But then I was playing them in the studio, and while the film was playing, and I thought actually these fit really well on the on the film. So I laid them in and started working with them in within the edit. Yeah. Uh, but I I felt very self conscious about it because having written the film, directed the film shot the film, processed it, edited mm. it, you know, was doing the sound at that point. With yeah, Foley your your fingerprints it. were well and truly on it. Yeah, and I thought, <laughs> I'd, is it really appropriate for me now to write the theme tune? So I I put the drones on there and then said to the producers, I, I, I said, you know, they're just, they're just temporary. I just mm. laid them in for something to be in there just as a placeholder, really. But, but I really thought they worked and actually Kate and Lynn the producers agreed so they stayed in there but I still felt self-conscious about it and I didn't credit myself you know mm. there's no credit yeah. to the score within the film at all but then Reg saw the film and then got in contact and said do you want to put the soundtrack out have you thought about putting the soundtrack out as a record which I hadn't but then I thought that's a good idea because we had some great musicians on the track so I had um, Gwenno Saunders who I mm. mentioned Thea yeah. a couple of tracks from Thea Gilmore the, the Malarkey band in Bristol 
Um, some friends of mine's band, Fire Island Pines, which are one of my favourite bands who've been sadly overlooked um, or, you know, haven't had the success they deserve. And I thought it'd be great to, to put them out on a soundtrack album. But what Reg was actually talking about more was the score. Mm. And so we ended up programming a, a record that had four four of these drones on each side. So just like a yeah set of eight eight drones. I think seven of them were used in the film and one of them maybe isn't in the film. Mm. And then um, I sampled some of the dialogue from the film into the into the drones as well. Nice one. Yeah, and then that comes out in the 70... I mean, it's out so digitally the, now. It's out on record and, and cassette on the 17th. Hold on a minute. It's on cassette? Yeah. Yeah, limited run of cassettes. How limited? I don't know, actually. I'm not sure the numbers. Um... Yeah, they normally do a run of a run of cassettes as as well as. Do you well. have something at home to play cassettes on still? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You're a better man than me. Mine's mine. I've got shoeboxes in the loft of cassettes that are neither used to ornaments. Well, now. no, I because I, I um because I do a lot of sound onto tapes. So I've got a quarter inch tape player that I use to master stuff. But yeah. I've also got a. Um, uh, Tascam Porter Studio four track that I use oh, as nice. well. I, I do quite a lot of my short film soundtracks onto that. And then when I've sort of bounced it all down and mixed it onto tape, I'll quite often play it out of there because it plays at very quick speed. I'll play it out of there and then record it onto a tape deck. So actually, I've got a tape deck. Which and the reason I got that, the reason it survived, because a mate of mine, Callum, who's the first AD on on bait, hmm. he bought me a cassette version of the audio book for. The Perfect Storm, which is one of my favourite books, hmm. and um, the reason I kept hold of my tape deck is because I could play that audio book, and actually I'm really glad I did because hmm. now I use it professionally. So yeah, I've got three or four ways of listening to cassettes in my studio. I wish I mean I'm, I was must have been nothing to do with your film and digressing slightly, but yeah, I was having a bit of a reminisce with some friends about, and we all seem to own Beastie Boys "License to Ill" on bought album cassette. Yeah, I do. Yeah, with the, with the inlay that you pull out. And yeah. It's yeah. A, Aeroplane yeah. cigarette going into all yeah, 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 yeah. Happy days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've still got. I've, I know exactly where that cassette is in my studio. <laughs> you definitely bad man. Mine's in the loft somewhere. Come I kept hold of it. Like I've got a, on the on my desk. I've got a, some cassettes that I of things that I never owned on CD. Mm. So I've got the Garden soundtrack, Simon Fisher Turner, so the Derek Jarman film, which is just one of my favourite albums mm. of all time. Um, and the Paris Angels album, Sundew, which is just a masterpiece, which I've just bought on vinyl. And there's one other, I can't think what it is. Another... Has that got perfume on it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. just yeah. perfect yeah. piece of music, isn't it? Yeah. And I've, <laughs> last Christmas, as a present to myself, I bought I bought it on vinyl. I found it on Discogs and bought the vinyl. So I've got a, I've got a, a set of albums that I've only ever owned on cassette and, nice. and vinyl, never owned digitally. Well, look, congratulations on your burgeoning record career, then. <laughs> Thanks very much, yeah. I mean, that was it. It was a one-record deal, so and that's it, done now. But you may make other films with other, other, other guide yeah. scores that end up becoming the score. Well, the new, the new film um, that we're shooting next year, actually, some of it's set subterranean, so I'm creating drones at the moment that, that I think we're going to take down underground in one yeah. of the old mines down in West Cornwall and play it from quarter-inch tape through the mine shafts and re-record it so I've actually I think that the soundtrack for that one's going to be pretty much set before we've even shot a single frame of the film I watched I mean this is again we're digressing but I don't care uh, I watched a choir 
200 feet down a, down into a mountain in Norway in the dark, yeah. singing with no acoustical uh, addition but the, the reverberation of the space. Oh, amazing. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Well, that's funny because I've got a scene in the film that involves a choir being down in the mine, but they're not actually singing. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Bait. <clears throat> yeah. This uh, fantastic film. And I was, I was saying as, you, as, you, as we were in reception waiting to come up into this room to record that I could have been, I could have been the hipster that saw it at Berlin when it, was, uh, when it was just beginning its breakout in 2019, <laughs> its, its first baby steps. But Britflix did put it on the news site, so we... Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. We, wish, we, we were, were shouting about it at the very least. You were, you were in very early. It's funny, Darren Heyman, um, ex of... Hefner, who reviewed Bait for um, and 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 of this parish, he was. I talked about his film project he did about. Oh, the, you uh, did the, the, yeah, thanks uh, for the, the thankful, thankful villages. Yeah, yeah. thankful villages. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, um, he. I just saw a tweet that he put up the other day. I can't remember what he was talking about, but he was sort of. He signed it off by saying, "But I'll, uh, it, uh, but don't forget, I, I saw Bait before you. You know, it's just sort of because he because he he did see it in Berlin. So it's funny to." You know, people. I, when people say they've seen the film, I'll, I'll, I'll say, oh, where did you see it? And the people who did see it in Berlin tend to say it like that. They say, oh, I saw it in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You know, and it's funny because obviously Berlin for for me is was massive, and it will always be such a memorable experience. But it's funny to hear other people sort of. I mean, yeah, on I, the outside also got caught up because that was a world premiere, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's yeah. like that's a that, in 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 rock and roll terms, that's a big gig in it for a film. It's it's. It's reached a, a part in its road, which is like, will anybody like this? Yeah. Well, it's great, you know, like when we were down in reception a minute ago talking, you know, I've just got, I just spent six hours getting here from Penzance. Yeah. Um, every time I come up to London, it's just, you know, it's, it's not, it's, I live quite a long way away from most places, hmm. although I do consider I live in the centre of the world. But, I, you know, it takes a long time to get up here. Berlin, you know, we took the train all the way to Berlin for that screening, for that, World premiere. We spent two days on the train getting there and nice. arrived an hour beforehand and then got to the hotel and all I wanted to do was go sleep. But then we got changed, walked over the road and then there were 660 people there waiting to see the film. And nobody had seen it up until that point. We'd had a cast and crew screen in, the, in, a, in my mm. home cinema to, in the big screen which seats 76. Yeah, That was the biggest screening we'd had. Nobody had seen it. And mm. so suddenly there were 660 people who I didn't know in a, in a cinema. So yeah, it was... It was a, a massive moment. I don't think I. It wasn't until I walked across the road and realised that all the people who were milling around outside the cinema were were there for the film. That what a big deal it was. Because I was thinking the cinema was a multi-screen. Hmm. Oh, um, you thought they were ready for all the. There's like well, a yeah, selection of films. Yeah, I, I said to Mary, my partner, I said, I wonder what else is on. And then we got over there and, they, and said, what, what else is on? They said, no, no, single screen. And that, I just Ooh. thought, oh wow. Then the pressure <laughs> was felt. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel none and then suddenly you did kind of thing that realisation that they were all there for you yeah well yeah. not you obviously other people made the film with you like but um, yeah no yeah I mean there was a few of us from the film there mm. so I think everybody felt they were in the same boat I think Kate and Linda producers were probably more aware of um, were probably feeling more pressure they'd been at yeah. the press screen in the night before which uh, so they'd been over there for a couple of days beforehand. So I think they were probably more acclimatised to what was going on. But yeah. me and Mary had just arrived. Ed was there. It was his fortieth birthday. Hmm. Um, I think it hit him what a big deal it was. Um, yeah, and we walked into the cinema. We went in last when the when the auditorium was full. Yeah, 
And um, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it was. And the only British film showing, wasn't it, in a kind of premiere sense? In in the Forum strand, yeah. it was yeah. the only British film. I think they said it was the only British film they'd shown in Forum for 10 years. I think the previous film was Hotspot by Tracy Emin, Blimey, which was welcome. a long time ago. Congratulations on that front, then. Yeah, so, one of the things, and I'm sure, and I'm pretty sure at this point, you've talked a lot about. Um, anyone coming to this new with this podcast and nothing about Bay, it's a film shot black and white on 16 mil and you've already alluded to the fact that you processed the film yourself and stuff. So yeah. I feel that you've probably talked about that quite a lot already this year. Yeah. So what, <laughs> what I want to talk to you about is the, the, the notion of the process of filmmaking in a, in a macro sense, not just the process of making your film. Yeah. Um, and something you said at No Direction Home, which was a get, get together Matt, Matt Harlock does, um, and it was sort of trying to rediscover what it was you enjoy about film, as in you were trying to get films made in the traditional sense of, I think you just mentioned like, you know, writing one sheets, log lines, treatments, mm. umpteen drafts where somebody says, oh, this script needs more vitamin C. And you go away and think, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and then you go write another version and go, it's not quite right. Or they'll go, you've, you've broke that character now, whatever it might be. And suddenly you, you end up, it's not about filmmaking anymore, is it? It's about getting through that gate to get you to the next stage. Yeah, appeasing the committee. Yeah, and, and you don't yeah. know who all the committee is at that time, do you? No. No, I just... I think I just realised I wanted to go back to the joy I had for filmmaking when I was a kid, mm. or when I was a teenager. I mean, I do some teaching now, and um, it's, you see it with students that... When they start out uh, on a university course, for example, the mm. sort of excite their excitement is about making films because that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. You know, that's how they end up in there because they've got this love of of making films, of creating something, of being part of that not industry, but part of that sort of collaboration that that makes films. Mm. And then you see with a lot of them, you see a transition into being obsessed with the grades. You know, which I which I completely understand because they're paying a fortune, and so of course they want to come out there with some sort of, um, you know, some sort of badge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but I and I I'm always saying, you know, the do good work, mm. and the grade will follow. Don't aim for a good grade, and then think about what the work's going to be afterwards. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. The grade should be a side effect. Of good work, and I've been saying this for for years. And then I and I think I I began to realise I had to apply that to my own work and think, you know, who am I trying to who am I trying to sort of appeal to? Mm. You know, who am I who am I asking permission of to make films? Mm. You know, trying to write something that will be this or that. You know, appeal to this person or that person or that or this audience or that audience and this funding body and that funding body. And I just thought. I want to um, forget about the audience, you know, and forget about people who are the, who are deciding whether you can make this work or not, and just mm. make the work. And and the, paradoxically, I decided that I would um, make film. Well, I I decided I was going to make film that didn't cost any money. And paradoxically, that happened to be shooting on film, which is the <laughs> thing that everybody says costs a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it introduced a discipline to the way I was working. And this was short film. I just decided. Actually, my, my big love was Super 8. Mm -hmm. I always loved shooting on Super 8 because that's what I started with, um, 
Which is which is what I th- that's the reason I th- I thought I loved it was because it's what I started with, mm. but it wasn't actually. It, it's something much deeper than that. I think that attracts me to that way of working. But I thought, right, I'm gonna just I'm gonna start making some short films on Super 8, like I did when I was 16, 17 years old. Mm. Um, hand splice them, make a soundtrack on a tape recorder, press play on the projector and play on the tape recorder at roughly the same time, and watch them in my room on my own, and maybe show them to people if. If they were interested, and I just thought I'm just going to go back to that. I'm just not going to. I'm going to forget about everybody else and just enjoy this as that sort of like Sunday afternoon activity that you do on your own and, and you don't care what anybody else thinks about it. But what happened was that work then started to get noticed. The short film work, people started screening it, and it got selected for festivals and big festivals and lots of festivals and won prizes and things. And I just thought, actually, this is... What this feedback were you getting then at that point that, that, that made you think, hold on a minute, I'm, I'm kind of onto something. I don't want to stop this. And I don't want to blunt it. But if it's suddenly getting that kind of traction, there must have been, you must have been getting some feedback as to well, I suppose what, it was, what, what it was appeal the, you were having. It was the invo- invites to festivals that I was getting, really. I mm. mean, the first, the first Super 8 short film I did that... I made that I really thought I wouldn't show to anybody because it was really personal. It was like a, a diary film. Um, and I put, a, it was when, I'm not on Facebook these days, but when I was on Facebook, I put a little 30 second clip of it up. Hmm. And um, a friend of mine is a producer, Rebecca Mark Lawson saw it. And she just contacted me and said, oh, what's this? Can I see the rest of it? And I sent her the film and she said, this is really great. And I thought, yeah, I think it's really great. And I didn't mean that as an arrogant thing, but I'd made it for me. Mm. So, and, and I really liked it. And then suddenly there was this other person who seemed to like it as well for the same reasons that I liked it. And I thought, actually, well, then maybe there's an audience. So the audience becomes a side effect of creating interesting work. And was, you, know, was you almost like making this sort of reacting to everything? You were sort of like, I'm going to shoot this and then I'm going to create this audio. So you, you hadn't at the start, you didn't really have an image as to what the finished thing was at all. I'd actually shot it. I shot the footage in 2004. That's right. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And so I, when I decided I was going to make a film for myself um, or make a little short film, you know, and, and just make it very personal, I just looked around the studio and I had these three rolls of Kodachrome 40 that, had, that I'd shot in Ireland in 2004. I'd had them processed. They'd gone off to Germany while the, that lab was still open. Hmm. And so they'd all been processed. So I put them on a projector and I looked at them and thought, oh, this look, you know, this looks really interesting and then I got it scanned so I had it digitally so I could mess around with with it a little bit in the edit but I just mm. thought I'm going to write a I'm going to write a narrative for this footage that I've got so it was straight away you know I was doing these things that ordinarily if you know if you're applying for funding you'd have to write a treatment you'd have to get somebody's approval to get mm. the money all of that kind of stuff and I just thought no sod it I'm just going to do it and just go for it and it just you know it, it might not sound like a big revelation but for me at the time it was because I was in development with lots of other films. So I was, I was attached to a feature film that had been in development for a long time. I had my own feature film that had been in development since 2002, which actually is bait. Mm. Um, and so I was sort of stuck in this process of, of, um, of just waiting for people to read stuff. Um, people to suggest changes to scripts and then and then write, and then making the changes and more changes and then you know dealing with people dealing with organisations where the staff there's quite a high staff turnover so you get to know somebody and then they would go and then and then it was just like I just was thinking well is this what grown up filmmakers do then is it just you know just write emails and wait and you know and I thought I'm going to go back to being a kid filmmaker and just get on with it and so what so now having sort of uncovered this obvious secret. <laughs> 
of, of playing, which yeah. seems ridiculous to think that's like a uncovering. A, yeah, like I say, I don't cr- think it's a big revelation to yeah. anybody else. But um, no, no, me but at the time, it was like, hold on, I want to get. Why did I want to start making films? It was because I enjoyed it, and now I'm just stuck in this bullshit I, of development that I, I, I was did, hating. I read um, Stephen Pressfield's War on Art. Yeah, and I can't remember the guy's names now, but there's a book called Art and Fear. Right, and it just talks about compulsion versus want. Mm. If you want something, you'll probably never bother. Yeah. If you're compelled to do something, you'll do it regardless of whatever's in the way. Yeah, yeah. And if you're not compelled, then don't do it. Don't yeah. sweat, don't fret about it. Yeah. No, and I de- it's definitely a compulsion for me. I was with um, Mosem Macmalbaf in Finland. Right. Um, in June, just yeah, I met him at a film festival, and we spent a bit of time together. And he said to me. He just said filmmaking isn't a job, you know. And he said, and he said to me, you 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 don't make a living out of making films. Mm. And on one in on one hand, I thought actually that's quite depressing that he's saying that. You know, somebody with his filmography and his genius yeah. is saying that he doesn't make a living out of making films. You know, he, he makes his living out of teaching and workshops and stuff like that. But then I think. It, I think what he was saying to me was sort of double-edged, really. That he's saying, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be a job either. It should be, you know, if it's a compulsion, it can't, it can't be a job. If, it, if you're mm. that passionate about it, it, it can't be compromised in that way by being a job. So I think that was very, um, that sort of tapped into the way I was well, thinking. Well, if you think, well. I mean, if we think about something more sort of obvious, like playing Sunday league football. Mm-hmm. You don't do eight pints of lager and go out and play football because you want to. It's because you're compelled to. There's no other reason to do it. <laughs> yeah. Why would the hell would you put yourself through that? And plenty of people do. Yeah. And, and they're not getting paid to do it. No. But they love doing it. And I think that's... Yeah. And it's... I think the, the job thing is the grown... Is, weirdly, you've used the word grown up a lot and stuff. There is that, that thing that we're, once, once you become an adult, yeah. whatever one of them is, yeah. you're, you're, you're sort of forever looking for what the bloody rules are. Yeah. And then when the rules don't suit, you're like, so what, I don't do this then? Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder whether I'm I'm sort of seen as an anomaly with bait. Because, um, I mean, it, seems, it sounds really self-obsessed, but, I like, when I when I finish bait, or before we'd done bait, hmm. I'd have people saying to me, you know, or well, the next film, are you going to do it sort of... They wouldn't say properly, but they meant properly, you know. You're going to use a proper yeah. camera. Are you yeah. going to... Are you going to use um, a proper cinematographer, a proper yeah. DP? You're going to, yeah. you know, it might be an idea if you work with a scriptwriter, editor, and all this kind of stuff. And I even had a meeting with somebody after Bait was finished who still sort of said that. And I just thought, I don't know, yeah, where, you know, is it? I mean, it seems really arrogant to even consider how you might be perceived. But I do sometimes wonder, are people, is it such an anomaly, this film? And people are wondering, oh, I wonder. You know, he's done. He's done that. Well, and, t- and is he going to do it proper next time? Sort well, of I want. It's not so much proper or improper, but I remember when I first got told about it, mm. and that when you read a description of it, and I think it was a bit like the one when you were quoting Peter Bradshaw's review of your film. Even yeah. you were kind of going, "It's all magic," but you couldn't sell a film on the back of what he said. Almost, it was like you got great pride from what he said. Yeah, but they were all kind of. You could read it all as pejorative as much as you could read it as a claim. Yeah, and and I think my imagination of what your film was, having been told. The minute someone prefaces anything with the words experimental this, yeah. you're kind of like, oh, okay, so it's, there's going to be a load of non-linear. Mm-hmm. I'm going to watch some paint dry and yada, yada, yada. But in fact, the, one of the biggest fulfilling things I got from 
that expectation of what I was going to watch when I got to see it mm. was the fact that it's it's experimental in the sense of the shape on the screen. That's about where the experiment begins and ends to me compared mm. to if I'm going to say different from it and it's black and white, but then black and white existed before your film, so yeah. you've not invented that. Um, no. And and you you tell us a very simple story of yeah. somebody struggling life. Which is, I heard a lot of that from people who who I did interviews with who to, who said they couldn't believe how accessible the hmm. film was, and I think that's the success of it. Really, hmm. is that it is access it is accessible, and that, and I think that you know talking back to those um, Peter Bradshaw quotes. I mean, mm. the, my favourite one, which I've spoken about a lot, is is, is when he described the film as, as if F. W. Murnau directed an episode of EastEnders and I think that you know even right back to that very first review that mm. kind of sums it up yeah that it is it is as accessible as a soap opera but it's formally experimental but the other thing I think about it is it's it's simp it's such a simple story and mm. actually people so many reviews have said it's a very simple like that's a crime <laughs> no but they, but they but they actually have said it positively yeah, 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 which yeah, is yeah. A, and I and I because I just I'm crap at plot as mm. an audience member I can't follow plot as an audience member mm. I'm terrible at it you know I don't just, go see knives out then right no I'm just <laughs> lost within seconds and um and so I, I don't like complex, I don't like high concept, I don't like complicated plots. I like simple stories around a complex theme. Mm. And, so, and so many films that we watch, or that I watch, are very complicated plots around mm. a very simple theme. Mm. And that's where I just sort of bounce off those films, because I'm not interested. Because one, I get, I can't keep up with the plot, and then thematically there's nothing to key, key on to. So I think it maybe accidentally that's what, what we've done with um, with bait is create a very simple plot um, around a theme that's quite complicated, and and that that complication is heightened by the position we're in politically and societally at the moment, which uh, was very lucky. Time yeah, was. yeah, 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 yeah. It was. It was very. It was. It felt like. A, I mean, I know obviously it dates back well before it, but it felt very much like a like a Brexit movie about the state of Britain, which obviously is n that wasn't your intention. No, but I think, you know, you're saying it, it, the film dates back before... 2016. Brexit, yeah. But I think Brexit dates back a long way before True. Brexit. Yeah, anyway. yeah, so yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I do think it was written in the context of what was going yeah, on. Yeah, those attitudes weren't created in 2016, you're right. No, yeah, yeah, that was yeah, the, yeah. I mean, it's the, the, the end point, wasn't it? Mm. Or the start of the end. <laughs> well, no, I mean, and a friend of my, filmmaker friend of mine, Sam Asher, has described your film as being the best anti-gentrification film he's ever seen. yeah. Which is kind of a, which is, that makes it sound like an angry film, which I don't think it is. No. Um, but I know, but I completely agree with his point at the same time. Yeah. Well, and also, I, I, I think what's funny is that um, I think I talked about gentrification in an in a interview I did with The Guardian before the film came out. Mm. And, um, and I made a joke about, um, it was Laura Snapes in The Guardian interviewed me, and she mentioned about how the film was going to open in Newlyn. Um, which is an art house cinema that opened in uh, in an old fish processing place oh. um, in a smokehouse in Newlyn, and um, and she said, you know, how do you feel about that? How, you know, gentrification. I said, well, you know, and yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of gentrification, but if it's if it's cinema, if it's to do with an art house cinema, then you know, I'll let that one go mm. as a joke. And and Alistair, who runs the cinema in Newlyn, just said to me, you know, he said, can you not make out that we're gentrifiers? Um, <laughs> And he reminded me that there'd always been a cinema in Newlyn. Where yeah. the new cinema is in Newlyn is right opposite where the cinema 
used to be yeah. the gaiety in Newlyn, which had been there for, for donkey's years. Mm. Um, so, but it is funny what cinema has become. You know, the, the sort of gentrification of cinema from something that was the art form for the masses, the cheap, accessible art form, to now something that is much more expensive, a little bit more elite, sold as much more of a theatrical experience than it, than it used to be. So people have told me that about the film, that the film is a, a sort of reflection of the gentrification of cinema, which is... wow. Yeah, I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't get. But I know. I know what you're no. saying. I mean, you think about. I don't know, like an everyman cinema mm. versus a flea pit. Yeah, you can see what they're doing. It's like come here and you can drink your white Russians and. Order I don't a think pizza. I've ever been to an everyman. I have. They're very comfortable. Right. But it's it's not like going to the cinema. It is the yeah. very tiny screens. Yeah. So you're not watching it with 300 people, gasping and farting or whatever they're doing, which makes for a. Yeah. You know, you're in a, when you're in that 600 seater cinema watching your film in Berlin. Yeah. You're watching a film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you're watching it with 20 people who've got themselves some ciabatta and a white Russian, maybe yeah. you're not having the same experience. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. uh, everyone. I, uh, <laughs> I think it's great you put one cinema. But, um, so one of the things that I, I enjoyed about uh, No Direction Home was, was, was what you've been told your film is and, and the influences you've got that, you've never, that you'd never heard of. Do you want to give us a couple that spring to mind in terms of um, where somebody said to you, do you know what, you can see you're, you're really influenced by... X. Yeah, well, it's funny because it's been going on for so long now. I, I genuinely forget who, you know, whether I was influenced by people or wasn't influenced by people. Mm. Um, I remember I made a documentary a couple of years ago about um, a fishing cove near me and the film's called Enough to Fill Up an Egg Cup. And um, Chris Morris, who runs the, fil the School of Film and Television at Falmouth University, saw mm. it and said to me, um, that it was like hum uh, Humphrey Jennings film mm. and I knew the name Humphrey Jennings but I didn't know his work so I got the box set of all of his stuff and worked yeah. his way through it and just got a bit obsessed with his his work so you could see it as you could see what what you, what Chris Marshall was saying yeah yeah oh wow uh, and I could yeah yeah definitely and um and it became you know so that then became an influence on bait even though I didn't even though Bait really predates me being interested in Humphrey Jennings, but it, it sort of reinforced what I what I was doing mm. in my mind. It made clear where these influences were coming from. The other things people you know, have likened it to Soviet montage cinema. Okay. Um, and that and that's really interesting to me because it because I've always said that there's no great theory behind the way Bait is put together. It's very dictated by the by the equipment that it's created mm. with. So there's a lot of close-ups and those close-ups are actually to do with one, the, the frame size. So the Academy ratio of the, of the image that the camera gives me. It's also, I operate the camera. I have to push the shutter, but I'm also directing the actors. So I want to be near the actors. So wherever I go, the camera goes with me. So if I'm near, if I have to be near the actors to speak to them, then the mm. camera's near, that means it's going to be a close-up. Now I could pontificate about my reasonings behind, you know, that my emotion, the emotional connection between the characters on the screen mm. and the audience through close up and all this kind of stuff. But it's bollocks. It's because I had to take the camera with me. So and and a, and a face fills up the frame perfectly. You know that Academy ratio frame is fit for faces. I don't. 
I don't have enough time or resources to shoot endless coverage. Mm. So I shoot the fragments of the scenes that I think I'm going to need. And then I get into the edit and realize I haven't quite got everything that I need to cover the action. Mm. So I cross cut in different ways and it throws up these accidental, accidental mm. um, juxtapositions. So then you get into the Kushlov effect. So, you know, you, you've, gone, you've gone out of my classroom now. Well, the, the idea that if, 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 a, if a single shot has one meaning and another shot has a different meaning, okay, okay. you put those together, those two shots that have individual meanings together, at the point where they intersect, it creates a third meaning. This is like William Burroughs' third eye, isn't it? <laughs> the third mind. If two people have a conversation, yeah. there's a third idea that gets created yeah. that without the two people talking. Yeah, and what Kush <clears throat> the Kushlov effect, when he, he, he had a shot of, uh, of an actor just staring straight down the lens and then he cut to a shot of some food and then he cut back to the actor mm. and when he cut back to the actor he the actor was doing this expression showing that he was hungry and then he did a shot of um the actor staring down the lens then a shot of a somebody in a state a mm. woman in a state of undress and it cut back to him and suddenly he was looking lustful and then did the same with a, a with a dead infant and it cut back and he was looking kind of like um, devastated but actually it, it's exactly the same close up we just create these associations through the juxtaposition ah. which is, is a big part of Soviet montage theory okay um, and the way you know the way you put shots together in a, in so a, the way the you've been forced to sort of shoot your movie as, as coincidentally created a contrast in images that work in the same way yeah Brilliant, and it's not that I don't recognise them when I'm doing them. It's just they're quite not. They're not often planned in the writing because I'm a big believer that you do as much writing in the edit as you do in the script. Well, Jeff, interesting. On the way here, I was listening to James Mangold talk about making Le Mans, yeah, uh, Ford versus Ferrari mm -hmm. for US listeners, yeah. um, and he says that there's a macho myth about the filmmaker that walks on set with the film in their head. Yeah, you know, he said. You, he said we're all taking a chance of this. We'll pull this off. Yeah, he said, and this is a guy. You know, I don't know how many millions of pounds Le Mans took to make, but it was quite amazing to hear someone talking about a movie where you think there's a whole load of suits signing checks and checking off stuff, and yeah. yeah, he's going. I hope we pull this off. Yeah, but I think the people writing those checks, they should be glad that the director walks on there unsure of what's going to happen because yeah. if they're not, they're not engaged in it properly. This is what he was if saying. If you yeah. go on there and you know everything that's going to happen. Mm. I just think you're in big trouble. And there is a cliche saying, you know, if if everybody on set has a really good time, then by the time the film's finished and screened, the audience are going to have a terrible time. But I think there is that sort of truth. And I think that I do think the shoot has to be a nightmare. It has to be, you know, for the for me, hmm. I think I have to be... You have to be on your toes for I'd the be entire on my time. Yeah, don't sleep properly. Not because there isn't enough time to sleep, it's just because my brain's going all the time. I'm re-editing it as I'm shooting it. I'm re-shot listing it, you know, mm. during breakfast when we're going to shoot. We're working so quick that I don't even quite often have time to explain to people what we're going to do. I'll just mm. grab an actor and line up a close-up and say, right, look over there at that fence post and on the count of three, look over there at that car because I've just had an idea of how that close-up is going to cut into a sequence. And so I think without that sort of energy... The, the, the unique thing about a shoot is you have all these people together mm. who are all... They've all got that shared energy. They've got all of that focus to the detriment of the rest of their life. So, you know, people go home. Film sets are funny like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't, I've, never been, I've never worked anywhere else No, like it's it. why people have, you know, very intense relationships. It's why when people go home they to their normal life, they take a long time to acclimatise. Yeah. The people don't open their post while they're shooting a film because the real world doesn't exist. You know, the bills are mounting up and all that. Because everything 
it's only the shoot that matters at that yeah. time. Which and that energy that is created in that that's the key to making a film. And if you, I just think if I'm if I'm too relaxed, I, I shot a film, a, a short film after we did bait, which I didn't shoot and I didn't write. So I was much more in a conventional director role. So you were sat in a chair going, do this, do, do that. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was wandering around with a, drinking a cup of coffee, chatting to the actors, and I really didn't... I wasn't, you know, and I'd go go home and I'd get a good night's sleep and everything, everything had been shot-listed and planned and yeah. everything. So the shoot was great, but when it came to the edit, I found the edit very difficult because I didn't feel it had the energy... So you didn't have any, I guess, and you're disconnected from it. Cause I was slightly, it. yeah, yeah. And they, I found it, re- I mean, I'm really proud of the film that we ended mm. up with, but it was very tricky. Um, I found it very tricky in post-production because I think, for me, the shoot was too, it ran too smoothly. Mm. They were, everything was known. There weren't any unknowns. There wasn't that moment when we go, oh, shit, we haven't got this, this, and this. What are we going to do? And we put our heads together and come up with this new idea that we would never have come up with. Well, let's. I mean, one example you shared at No Direction Home, so let's do it on the podcast. Is that you hadn't cast the the the, the woman next door to yeah, Mrs. Uh, Peters. Yeah, Mrs. Peters. So talk talk for the for the listeners' benefit. Talk us through that that timeline. Yeah, well, I've got a superstition that I don't cast one of the characters until the last minute or yeah. as late as possible. Mm. So we didn't have. There's a the next door neighbour in Bait um, hadn't been cast, which was fine. But I, but it, we'd all sort of, well, it certainly slipped my mind. I won't you'd forgotten talk, your I won't, own dogma. I won't, you'd, you'd forgotten your own dogma. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten it too much. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I won't speak for everybody else, but I'd certainly, it certainly slipped my mind. I think we were sitting down to eat tea and, um, and somebody said, oh, you know, who's, who's playing Mrs. Peters? And I said, oh yeah, no, we need to sort that out. And, um, I said, when are we shooting it? Oh, tomorrow. So, uh, so Ed then had this idea that he he knew this. Um, he said, "Oh, I, I know somebody who could do it." And I mean, it was the most Cornish thing he could say. It was it, it, we were we were in Senna, and he said, "Oh, it's um, it's Janet who works in Anne's Pasties down the Lizard." Which, you know, so it's a pasty shop down the Lizard. So he rang her up. He said, "Oh, you know, she loves me. She's 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 great she'll do anything for me I'll give her a chat hmm. see if she wants to do it anyway she turned up the next day box of pasties from the pasty shop and she said alright what's on then <laughs> and I said well you need to walk from there to there and you need to say these lines we're not going to record the sound you're going to come back in a few months to do the dialogue but you know this this and this and and that was it you know it, and that I, I really loved that I mean that could have that could have gone wrong hmm. we could have not we, you know, it could have, we could have had to have like a a 30 year old man playing yeah. that part because we hadn't cast the appropriate person but I, I don't know I just I, I like living sort of slightly on on my nerves in those moments and I, and I think it I think it paid off now the other, the other thing that and this is something Ed talked about in um, in the time I got to speak to him was uh, he was originally in, in the journey that has been bait <laughs> yeah he was originally earmarked to play a much younger character and then by the time you got round to casting it for real, as it were, yeah. he's ready to play the grown-up. Well, he wasn't earmarked, he, but he did come along to an audition. Now, I don't remember it. Ah, okay. And, and this isn't because he was not memorable. It was because I've got 
the casting tape from one of the day's auditions, but not from the other day. So okay. my memory of the auditions is based on this casting tape that I watched, and I didn't see the other casting tape. So he was on the day that we didn't record. But yeah, he, I mean, it just shows how long the film was in development for. Mm. He came in to play Neil, the mm. sort of guy in, in his early 20s. Um, but then, you know, uh, in, the film never happened in that incarnation. And, and once the rewrite happened, once I'd become... You know, by the time we were getting ready to make it mm. again, I was middle-aged, so the character become middle-aged. Ed's a bit younger than me, but I met him and, and I knew I knew him from his stage work. He'd mm. done work with Mary, my partner, and I just knew that he really had something that was appropriate for the part, and he was up for it. And, I mean, he's, you know... The the, the, the actors don't really get scrutinised in this film. They, people don't tend to pick the mm. film apart yeah. too much in, when, they're, when they're critiquing it. It's much more about just taking the film as a whole. But mm. if one person does get taken out of it and, and looked at and assessed on the performance, then, then it's Ed and I think... Or Edward. And I think is um, You know, he, we wouldn't have a film without that performance... Indeed. Well, look, let's let's wrap up then. So, what's the what's the score in twenty twenty? Then, what's going to happen? There's going to be we're going to well, we've got to do on the seventeenth. Yes. Yeah. The NFT tickets are on sale. Um, live score with Gweno Saunders. The DVD's out on the twentieth of January and the VOD. Um, and then we continue with international festivals and distribution and through next year. And the record on cassette. The record on cassette out on the seventeenth to coincide with the live event. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks, you. It's great to finally be on here. Sorry, sorry it's taken so long. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.